0: Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer is Patrick Antonetti. Two guests this week, two great guests. First up, Pam Oliver, the Fox NFL reporter. I mean, one of the most accomplished uh, NFL reporters of uh, this generation or any generation. Um, I've had Pam on podcasts a number of times. She's always interesting. She's always honest and uh, this was no different. Uh, We talked about what it's like to cover the NFL this year got into uh, Pam's uh, significant health issues that she's had to sort of overcome and deal with during her career, probably some stuff um, that you guys uh, don't know about. And um, she just sort of gives an interesting uh, an interesting examination into a very, very high-profile job, which is obviously a Fox sideline NFL reporter job. And she's followed by Lindsay D'Arcangelo. She is the co-author of a new book, Hail Mary, the rise and fall of the National Women's Football League, and we discuss uh, how um, how Lindsay came upon the story and the challenge and fulfillment of unearthing a, something fascinating about an athlete or a league from the past or a previous era, and that's what um, that's what Lindsay did. It's uh, it's a really interesting book about. Um, about something I really did not know much about. I, I, I had, If I had heard of the National Women's Football League, maybe I'd heard of it barely. But it, these women were way ahead of their time uh, in terms of um, what they were doing. And even uh, if there were owners and others, and certainly the media coverage of the time, which Lindsay and I talk about, even if those, um, those types thought of it as a gimmick, the women did not. The women were athletes and took this seriously. So an interesting conversation with Lindsay, and and we do get into uh, some modern-day stuff about women's sports. Lindsay is a great uh, women's basketball writer. Both of us, obviously, are big fans of college women's basketball and the WNBA, so we talk about that as well. All right, so Pam Oliver to start, Lindsay D'Arcangelo to finish on the Sports Media Podcast. All right, if you are an NFL fan, Pam Oliver has been part of your life for— Three-plus decades? Four decades? After a couple of years at ESPN, she joined Fox Sports in 1995 and has worked as a sideline reporter on that network's biggest games, including eight Super Bowls. She's been a correspondent for 60 Minutes Sports, TNT NBA sideline reporter, away from sports, Atlanta's Woman in Sports Lifetime Achievement Award in 2019. Um, So a lot of honors for Pam Oliver. I'd be here all day. If I um, went through her entire resume. But I will say this, as someone who's written a lot about Pam Oliver over the last, at least as long as I've done this 12 years or so, um, there's very, very few people I've dealt with who have more professional integrity than Pam Oliver. I have an immense amount of respect for her and I'm uh, pleased to be joined by her on the Sports Media Podcast. Pam, how are you?
1: I'm great, Richard. Thank you so much. I appreciate your opening remarks. It, uh, it always, you know makes warms my heart when people say such nice things and um it just goes to show you that hard work perseverance and just trying to be good at what you do that pays off so that's wonderful thank you
0: you're welcome and again there's you know there's a couple stories i've done with you some stories quite frankly i have not been uh uh, favorites of Fox, but your integrity was always through the roof. And that's something I will never forget and have never forgotten. But let's start here. Is it crazy just to sort of hear a sentence when someone says you have been with Fox Sports since 1995?
1: It's, it, I, I cannot believe the number. Um, every time it comes up or I think about it, it's like, that can't be right, but it is correct. And um, it just Richard, when I tell you, it flies Uh, already at the oh, just over the halfway point in this season. It's just, you know, it's another season will be down before you know it. But yeah, it I'm I'm proud of the longevity. Uh, I wish, you know, at some points I, I have some regrets that I didn't. Do a lot of collecting and taking lots of photos and having documentation and all of these things and treasures, the opportunities that I've had to meet Muhammad Ali, for example. Uh, I didn't, I took it for granted. And um, those are some of the things I regret all these years later. But I have more positive and, you know, exciting things I think ahead. So looking back, you know that's some of the things I regret. But I'm also focused on my future and where I am being in this moment, which I think is is very very important to do.
0: Where did you meet Ali, if I can ask?
1: It was in Orlando. It was at um, a big sports award. I can't tell. I was still. I think I was still at. Um, I was just leaving ESPN, going to Fox. And um, he was right there. And I just got starstruck and said nothing. and Just started looking at my shoes, I think. It was uh, one of those moments that you wish you could have back so you can, you know, I really appreciate what he was and what he stood for and him as an athlete being one of the best of all times, um, transcending not just, you know, his sports, but his sport, but also, you know, the, what he meant, um, you know, socially and in the social consciousness of this country, those sorts of things that I regret not really um, having that moment to say even hello. I didn't even say hello. I just got shy, you know? And so I, I look back over those 20, 30 Years of you know not necessarily having those sorts of moments documented, but they were still my moments. It's not like I didn't appreciate them, and um, you know, at the time while I was in the moment, I was just kind of you know in awe, and I and I can get in awe, I get in awe of you know celebrities sometimes. Um, Denzel Washington, I was this far from him and could not speak. I sat on a plane next to Ti, the rapper, and got shy. So it's it's weird for me when people know who I am. Um, it's still weird to me. Um, but you know, he'd say things. He uh, Ti said something. It's like you know, I get real shy around celebrities. He says, "Well, what do you think you are?" And I always go back. I'm I'm a journalist. You know, I'm a reporter. I don't feel like I'm famous, but I understand that people know who you are. And yeah, that that's always been a weird thing with me, because you just really feel like I'm just doing my job. It's a great job. It's a job that I love. I'm lucky to have it. Um, but millions of people are watching. So that's that's one of those things on my part. That's just really bizarre. I don't know why I think that way.
0: No, I, I understand. I mean, it, you have this interesting job. And, you know, you might not think of yourself as someone as famous as some actress or actor or singer, but the reality is 25 million, 20 million people every Sunday for decades have seen you. So you are a very visible person, but I get it. It's sort of different. You know, you're not walking red carpets. You're not sort of uh, selling celebrity. At the same time, anyone who's been in your position, just given the prominence of the National Football League, we know. So it's that I I can understand that. So it's kind of a weird, surreal thing.
1: It was never my intention to be, quote unquote, famous or, you know, I I just I go about my job as if I did when I was in my 20s. You know, now I'm 60 years old. Um, I'm still in love with journalism and still try to be true to what the job is. It's not about you. There's a lot of that happening in the world today with these, uh, some of the younger people. Um, I've always tried to step back and, and focus on the work and the people that I'm covering and, you know, just doing my job. It's, it's um, that, the core of that has never left me. And I'm, I'm really, really happy about that and proud of that because gosh, I, this is what I've always wanted to do. And for all of these years, decades, as you mentioned, three of them, um, we're not even including my news days. And there I did that for eight years. Um, and that really formed me, I think, into what I eventually became, because that was, that was Richard, when I tell you that was run and gun, um, that was, you know, city council meetings, murder trials, um, gubernatorial campaigns. Though that sort of work kind of set me up for what I do now in terms of just being true to the journalism. People think it's sports, it's fun, it's all of those things, but it's also journalism. You have to approach it in that way. So I've never been frivolous about what it is I'm doing. Or the sport that I'm covering, I've never um, been a raw raw kind of person. There are people that I like. I'm talking to Zeke Elliott after we're done. I he's one of my favorite people. I think he's a great a great kid. Um, Dak Prescott tomorrow, great kid. Um, but I'm. You know, you're constantly coming into these these guys who are just at the you know beginning or early stages of their career, and you can say I was there for the beginning, and then you can also look at some guys who are out of the league said, I covered his entire career, and he's been out of the league for ten years. So, um, it it it's great. It's just great.
0: You mentioned your age before, and um, the reality is that you are thriving at an age where many people in the business have been long gone. Do you have any kind of thoughts as to why you have, and maybe if survive is the wrong word, I apologize, but how you have survived in a business that many times sends people younger than you and sort of discards them younger than you when they have more to offer, but ultimately want to replace them with a younger, perhaps less expensive model?
1: Yeah, um, that's a very real thing. And I'm not, I'm not naive to that. Um, I try to sit down and look at it, not so much, but you feel it, you do feel, you know, that you're being looked at sometimes unfairly because of your age and how long you've been, you know, on the scene you know, in my case with one particular company, I'm not saying there's pressure from within, but there is pressure on women in general as you age um, to be a certain thing and look a certain way. And, you know, I'm, I'm just, uh, you know, I'm 60 years old. I'm, I'm proud of it. It's not that I'm, um, uh, you know, ashamed of being 60. I'm not, tr- you know, trying to be anything that I'm not. I'm a grown ass woman. So you know, to me that's something to be celebrated. But I do recognize that that there's a shelf life in in this business, um, depending on who's running what company. Um, that is very, very real, and I don't, and I don't go about my day though giving that the time of day because that what however that's going to shake out, it's going to shake out. Um, I've been. Uh, if anything, just as you reach a certain milestone, you're like, "What happened?" But at the same time, look at the wisdom and the experience and the relationships that you know you're able to build build over the course of that much time. And I feel more exuberant and excited for the future. I'm a lifer in this business, so. Even if things change, um, you know, with my current employer down the road, I don't know, it will not be the end of what I'm doing. I feel that I can be a journalist for as long as they'll have me. I mean, the world, not just Fox. Um, well, I'm a lifer in this. I was just reading things about Al Michaels and, um, you know, uh, some, of the, some of his comments and, you know, I you just gotta wonder. Al's still at the top of his game, and to me, and I just look at him with such admiration. When I hear um, Sunday Night Football, when he, you know, during their open, I feel like cool. This is a big game. This is Al Michaels and Chris Collinsworth and Michelle Tafoya. Um, I watch those games typically on the plane when I'm flying back, but. Yeah, age is real. Ageism is real. Um, so, it's, you know, so are a lot of other things, and you just gotta you just mentally have to be in a good place.
0: Let me ask you about this year. As I talk to you, you you have uh, Falcons, Cowboys later in the week. As we tape this, you just had the Cowboys in your last game, and so, like you said, we're um, we're around the midpoint of the season. Pam, I would think that the last two years have been unlike any other year. Years on the sidelines given COVID. And then this year is probably different than last year, just given, well, for one, you got crowds and two, the sort of that access uh, seems to be at least a hybrid a little bit. You can talk to some people in person, maybe you do some stuff on Zoom. As we're at the midway point, can you just give me a sense of what the what covering the league for you has been like this year, the rhythm of the job, the travel, the access, what's it been like in 2021?
1: it's been joyous to me because of last year, um, where, you know, you could not get anywhere close to a player. You could not, you were not in a stadium full of fans. You were sitting on a bench by yourself, um, in this vast, um, uh, stadium and, just going, what is happening? But you also, at the same time, that's a selfish thought that you also have to understand where we were in this pandemic and where we still are. And so at this point, just being in these settings, being at Lambo and, and AT&T, and I got to experience Cleveland this year. I haven't been there in a number of years. And I made sure to take a couple of pictures near the dog pound. And I said, God, this is really, really cool. And I just is something I'm not going to take for granted this season. I'm going to take it all in. I'm going to relish it. I'm going to understand um, that this could all this could all change. If, if if we take a million steps backwards, not even a million, if we take a bunch of steps backward with this pandemic, we can find ourselves right back where to where we were. So I'm living in um, this mindset that i'm gonna I'm gonna have a blast. I'm gonna have fun, I'm gonna enjoy this. I'm gonna, you know, take pictures with fans and, you know, for my for my sake on my phone, um, not just necessarily just posing for pictures with them. I want to um, just remember, just remember this this year and what we've come out of and where we are now. I've gotten in trouble a couple of times, tell you the truth, because after a game, um, you know, you're supposed to stand six feet back. You know, you're doing um, interviews. These guys are wearing headsets and um, these sorts of things. But after the interview, like a player comes over to you and you meet him halfway, your inclination is to shake hands or, you know, how well you know the the player. You kind of give him a congratulatory hug. Yes, I do hug players um and i hug people i mean all the time sometimes people i just met 5 minutes ago but so i've gotten in trouble for that because you're you're not supposed to do that sort of thing i high-fived teddy bridgewater after the broncos game just to congratulate him on such a big effort and his play and it wasn't anything anti-cowboy but it was just like good for you teddy you did a great job. So I high-fived him and then producer's in my ear, don't high-five, no high-five, no touching, get back. And so, so things like that. Um, but the season in and of itself um, has been just a lot of fun. We've had an, uh, some teams a number of times. This will be the third time we've had Atlanta. We've had Dallas back-to-back. We had a couple of Panthers games early. So now we're kind of, we've got Indy coming up. We've got the Vikings coming up. We have another Green Bay game coming up. So it's just been such a wonderful mix of teams and players and coaching staffs. And um, so it's, it's been a great season. I'm having a blast. I've said that before, and I mean it with all my heart. I'm really having so much fun.
0: The group that you're mostly you've been with Kevin Burkhardt, Greg Olson, and you is generally speaking the the group. Greg Olson is a obviously a new analyst in the the larger scheme of things in terms of you know his the experience that he has versus some other analysts that you've worked with who obviously you know decades of experience. Let's say, how's that been? And is there you know one of the things Pam sort of having written about this for a while what you learn is that the best way to get chemistry on air is to to have chemistry off air is to is to become friends is to invest in each other's lives and so have you, I know you certainly did that with Troy, who's very, very tight with him and and Joe Buck. How have you how did you approach that with Burkhardt and, and Greg Olson? And did you try to do it the same way?
1: It was organic. It was just a real natural thing. It was the same way when I work with with Kevin and John Lynch and Kevin and Charles Davis. Things just sort of you you spend so much time um working toward a common goal that I think you just kind of bond. Over the work, you know, first of all, and then your lives as you get to know each other. Um, With Greg, it's been a smooth transition. We already have a million inside jokes. We already, you know, we've we've had our spouses dinner where we got to spend time, you know, with each other that way, not just our core group, but with our with our spouses. We, the majority of us went to John Lynch to see him inducted into the Hall of Fame um, at his invitation. So you do become close fast. I've I yet to, I'm happy to say. Um, and you know, since Troy and Joe and Matt Millen, Dick Stockton, before that, that I've yet to have a group that I'm just like, oh, get me out of here! What, get me out of here? It's never. I've never had that experience because you. I think we all understand how fortunate we are. And you're gonna have skirmishes. You're gonna have you're gonna, you know, have little bumps in the road. Um, we you know, we haven't had that yet. And I think we're led by Kevin Burkhardt who is such a such a pro and he's such a master of he's a leader, you know. It's he leads us in a lot of ways. You know, I think I have leadership qualities. Greg definitely has leadership qualities, so you know, we're all able to play that role, but Um, not to be corny, but you do become a family really quickly. Um, Our BAs and our producer and our director, um, all of these people who work tirelessly, um, you know, we all spend time together for these 17, now 18 weeks playoffs, which we don't have this year. Dang it. Don't get me started on that. But Um, so we're together for all these weeks. Um, you know, it's just on the weekends, but, you know, we're in constant communication. Everybody's working toward the same goal to, to have the best game possible as a crew, um, you know, to walk away feeling good and to lift each other up if we need it and to, you know, praise and, you know, but mainly we have fun. We laugh during commercials. We, you know, make fun of each other, Um, (laughs) you know, Greg is a very curious soul. That is his nature. So he he asks a lot of questions, but he just wants to learn. He just wants to know. He's been in this same world for 14 14 years or so. Now he's starting a whole new chapter and I've got a wealth of knowledge. Um, Kevin has a wealth of knowledge and it's fun to share it with a rookie. Um, a guy though, who, you know, he's a worker as well, but it's, it's just been so wonderful to fall right into something that feels again, like a family atmosphere.
0: I want to ask you a question, uh, sort of go, we're going through a number of different topics, uh, because there's obviously a lot to cover with you and to catch up with you. Representation is a huge thing when it comes to sports broadcasting. And there are so many women who I've interviewed over the years, uh, either for this podcast or for the Athletic or Sports Illustrated, who have mentioned you as a like like a, a, a role model to them or uh, a pioneer to them. Certainly a lot of women of color, but not just women of color, by the way. White, white women in the business as well. I know it's weird for someone to sort of see themselves sometimes in that position, especially as you are active and still working. But I, I would imagine there have to be people all the time, who are young in the business, who reach out to you. I am sure, particularly women of color, do. And I wonder just sort of how you approach this because I don't know what it was like for you when you were young, and if there was someone, if there was a Pam Oliver who you could look at as as a representation that hey, I could do this. But the reality is, because there's a Pam Oliver today, there are a lot of younger women of color who now actually can believe, like, yeah, I can get to, I can, I can be on uh, a network. And and do what Pam's doing.
1: Yeah, um, that to me is always quite cool. What I do is I don't just try to have these passing moments. I give them my phone number or my email, just so they can have access to me in a way that I can answer their their burning questions, or I can feel like, and they can feel like, well. You know, she really cares beyond. Oh, I'm. You know, they're not bothering me. Um, you know, these these young women are just curious and want to know what this business is like, how they can get in it, how they can succeed, how they can last. Um, and I'm really, really encouraged by the group of women that I keep running into. They're hungry. They're um determined they don't necessarily want to be in that celebrity class and they're not you know internet stars you know i do i do kind of get on to some people about um, this one girl i remember this case where she handed me a business card with all of her youtube information how i can go and look at some of her stories and i'm like honey it, I'm not gonna. It, I'm not stopping everything I'm doing to go to YouTube to look for you. You should be able to present um, something, you know, to me uh, or any news director or anybody in a position of hiring. Why should I do the work to go find out, you know, more about you and your social media status? Um, so I think these young girls today have that, uh, you know, difficult from the standpoint of they've got to succeed in the social media world you know, sometimes versus just doing what you want to do as a dream. Um, It's tricky. And I feel for those women in a lot of ways, but I do hope that I can leave, you know, just on an individual basis when I come in contact with someone, give them my phone number or my email to where we can form relationships. Uh, The mentorship thing I'm very um, selective in um, just because I met you once, you know, doesn't make me your mentor. But I am here to give you advice. But that doesn't mean that I'm your personal mentor. I'm here to do whatever I can do to help you succeed or answer your questions. Because I didn't have that when I was coming up. I didn't have someone, you know, in in my chosen profession that I could dial, you know, I could call up and say, Hey, help me understand this. A lot of it was kind of learning on the fly and figuring out as you go, which was fine. That's just the way my path went. And, you know, I don't, I don't have any problem with that. It would have been easier, but there's nothing wrong with figuring things out on your own.
0: Let's even sort of take like the, you know, late eighties, early nineties kind of thing. Was there anybody that you could look to who was on television at the time, high profile woman, let's even say in the NFL, who you could, even if you didn't know them, at least sort of, that would give you an indication that this was, this was possible. Leslie Visser. Interesting. Yeah. That's that, that that would have been my guess.
1: Yeah. Leslie Visser. She covered all the sports. Um, She covered the NFL, which I love. Richard, I'll tell you at one point I gave up on the sports part. Um, every place I went, um, from Albany, Georgia, to Huntsville, Alabama, to Buffalo, New York, um, and then on to Tampa, I, I was getting no traction in being able to do sports for a living. I was—I reached a conclusion that my fate is to work in news for the rest of my life, and it, it was not how I envisioned it. But I was getting zero opportunities in sports. Um, but I always watched Leslie. Um, I always saw, you know, her professionalism and her enthusiasm and the relationships that she had you that were clearly obvious, you know, from Chris Everett to um, a lot of NFL coaches. And I said, wow, that'd be great to be able to do that someday. And I get, but I gave up. Tell you the truth, I gave up that this wasn't going to happen. I said I'm I'm destined to be in news, and then just one fateful day that changed and uh, never looked back. But you know, to answer your question, yeah, it it, it truly was Leslie Visser, um, and you know, Robin was on the scene, Cheryl Miller was on the scene as sideline reporters. Um, and way before I was, um, I've just had the benefit of, um, being on the scene for a very, very, very long time. But those were women who they were doing sideline way before I, you know, I was still, I think coming into sports, um, I was at ESPN or I just remember watching Cheryl and Robin in those, in those roles first
0: briefly um, because I, I imagine it's probably a, a, a longer story. can you let my listeners know just what what was the what was the break what changed in terms of got get, giving you the uh, the path into sports
1: um it was one Thanksgiving weekend and uh, the normal reporter who was covering sports took that weekend off to go be with her family and I volunteered to go to this game it was. Tampa Bay Bucks under Ray Perkins, and they were playing the Green Bay Packers. That's when he played in Milwaukee. So I'm on the team charter doing that whole nine, terrified because I thought I know football. But then when you're up and at it, you're like, hmm. So I went to cover it for my station, Channel 13 in Tampa, and ended up asking a question that People remembered and talked about. It was Ray Perkins said something to the effect that we were so bad we couldn't be, we couldn't be the high school team today. And my question was, naturally, was if you can't be the high school team as a professional team, shouldn't you step down? And all I saw heads whipping around, and they're like, Who is that? And but you know, coming from news and knowing having my bs meter set on high i i felt that was an appropriate question i wasn't doing it to get attention but it just struck me if if that's how you feel if that's how you're going to talk about your football team that means you're not doing your job and so that became a news story and then um just contractually the way it worked out for both of us me and the young lady my my news director said this is the biggest step down uh, well, you're never going to be heard from again, but I'm going to let you go from news to sports. But I had to convince him that, that this was the move when he said, nobody's ever going to hear from you again. So yeah,
0: Bob Franklin,
1: I love him.
0: Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Here's, uh, where I'd like to sort of, uh, uh, finish up with a sort of a series of questions here. Kimberly, um, a Martin, who's a phenomenal, uh, writer reporter who's been on this, um, this podcast a number of times a couple years ago when she was at yahoo she wrote an amazing piece on you i think it's the best piece that's ever been done on you and one of the um you know one of the parts of this long piece pam was about your health yeah. and you were very honest about the migraines that you suffer and chronic headaches which could get so bad to the point where you would find a place in a stadium where there's like no light, no sound, no noise. So I know this is something that you've had to deal with for for years and years. So let's start here. Um, how is your health when it comes to migraines right now? And and has it come up this year? What, what what you know how how are you feel? I know it's a constant thing and a chronic thing, but how how are you navigating it this year?
1: Well, I've had several. Um, Over the course of the football season, for example, Um, I've gone from averaging five, six a month down to averaging three a month. Um, I've been lucky. I consider that being lucky, Um, but these have... Um, they, uh, they're they very debilitating for me. Um, they've been a, a problem for a very, very long time. It's caused me to miss a few games over the span of my career because I just couldn't take the noise and the light and the sickness that comes with that, the nausea and the vomiting. There There was one game about three years ago, three, four years ago, I was, I live in Atlanta. I was minutes from Mercedes-Benz um, and had the, the, you know, the, my driver just, I said, you gotta pull over. Um, we were, we were less than five minutes from the stadium. And I was like, dude, I'm, I'm hurling. I'm, you know, everything, my head is pounding. And I made the decision right then and there. I was like, I'm no good to anyone. Um, there is no way that I felt like I was going to get through that game, be productive, help the crew, um, contribute in any way. So turned around and I went home and I carried, I was so guilt. I felt so guilty about that for the longest time, but they really do knock me out of action. There were many games to where the night before I tend to get them in my sleep. So a Saturday night. I go to bed feeling one way and then three or four o'clock in the morning, I'm completely aware that I have a full blown migraine, so I'm running to uh, emergency rooms and urgent care, and teams are trying to, you know, hook me up with, you know, a certain doctor at this ER who will be able to help you navigate through it. So it's a whole production, and um, I feel like they're they've gotten better just from the standpoint of I'm having fewer. But they definitely are real and they continue to plague me, you know, not to, you know, have people try to feel sorry for me, but that's just the way it is. That's just part of my health issue. And um, and a lot of people suffer migraines, but, you know, you just do the best you can put one foot in front of the other and try to stay ahead of it medically if you can.
0: What happens at a stadium when it happens? What happens on a Sunday if it's it's when you're at the stadium and there are there, is there pain medication you can take? Is there something you can do?
1: Um, pain medication doesn't really, to me, it doesn't work in those settings. You know, you're just trying to, you're having symptoms of, you know, my neck would get really tight. Um, so I almost found this cocktail of um, anti-inflammatory, nausea medicine, and a steroid um, that when I'm home, I know. I carry those, the names of those medications around with me. So if I end up in urgent care or if I end up in the ER, I'll say, this is something that's helped to break it. It doesn't end it, but it gives me a fighting chance to get through a game. But yeah, I have been um, tucked away in, a, in our production truck, been tucked away somewhere quiet in a stadium, And then, you know, but I fought through it more than I failed at getting through it during a football game. It's a
0: pretty good lesson. You know, the other, the other thing that you mentioned to, to Kim was surgery every couple of years for fibroids, right? So like Mm -hmm. you're, you, I mean, you are a real true example of perseverance in that you have, you've had some of these significant health challenges, but you have, you have forged on, You, you have continued to excel in a, in a, in a career, um, I would imagine that as well has been. I, I guess at this point you know that it exists, but man, that's that's again something that would I think take out some other people.
1: Sure, um, that and, and we've made so much progress in the area of fibroids, and um, you know when I was coming up in my twenties, it was it was constant. It was one surgery after the other after the other. Part of the reason, you know, I was never able to have children because of all of those surgeries and scar tissue and all sorts of things. So, um, but that's something I don't look back on um, and, you know, cause I've had these wonderful stepchildren in my life and um, you know, that, you know, you want to be a mother, you want to be, you know, give birth, but I understood that, um, you know, maybe physically, medically, it wasn't a possibility. It wasn't a career choice. Um, It was kind of just, you know, what my body said was possible for me. But again, it's gratitude and understanding that despite those, you know, misfortunes, um, I've, you know, been able to thrive and do some great things in my life and not really let that knock me down. Because if you start doing that, then what's next?
0: Have you found, um, I, I would imagine your crew has been, the crews over the years that you um, have worked with have been good with this. They'll they'll find a, if you need a place of uh, darkness or need a place of quiet, they'll do, obviously, if you're on the field, that's one thing. But otherwise, if you're in a production truck or something like that, they'll do their best to, to, to help you out.
1: And a lot of them, I try to keep quiet. I don't want everybody to know. So I'll just, you know, there's our great director, Artie Kempner, who... It seems to be the guy I call at three, four o'clock in the morning when I know that I've got to get some medical help. Um, it was a Giants game. I forget who they were playing, but, you know, it's, it's I'm rollers in my hair, you know, one eye lined, the other one not. And then I'm just like, God, this is for real. It's happening. So all my stuff is everywhere. And I call Artie and he's helping me pack, he's helping me get on the phone with people. Um, to try to get some medical attention for one that was particularly, but I made it through the game. You know, I was really proud at the end. I kind of like, I did it. I did it. And, you know, you don't want to have to celebrate these stupid things, you know, you just want to be able to do your job But that. Um, For whatever reason that's been, you know, the bane of my existence and, um, you know, but things could be so much worse. And I, Again, I'm used the to word gratitude today, and I am grateful that um, overall I ha- I've been in really, really good health for a very long period of time.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, a te- it's your testimony to perseverance, Pam, to be very blunt. All right, the last thing I want to, you know, again, this, again, the, Kim's piece, like, I can't recommend it enough. Just Google Pam Oliver and Kim a, Kimberly A. Martin if you want to read it. You you told her at the time that you had been working on a memoir for a while, and uh, I don't know if you've someone who've kept a diary, but you obviously at a certain point were writing down like the course of your life and things that had happened and your thoughts. So at the time you had told her uh, very very personal, it would be a ro- it would be raw, and you were working through it. So now we're a couple years later. Are you still? Is, is that process still exist? Is, is it your intention to one day release a memoir? Because given you, what you've done in your career and who you've worked with in your life, I, I, it, for, at least for sports fans, that would be a really fascinating book.
1: Yeah, I do uh, want it to be real and raw. I don't want to read one of these, you know, 10 steps to success. You know, I want it to be kind of, you know, something that you can look at someone on TV and think everything's perfect and great. Um, but, you know, life is... Can be hard and messy. Um, A number of things I wanted to address, kind of childhood, growing up, my parents divorced, uh, some of the ugliness that went was part of that. But I also needed my family's permission to be able to talk about some of the real um, unpleasant things that go on when your parents divorce. So um, those are some chapters that I've gone back and tweaked and rewritten. And my agent is kind of like, Pam, where is the book? Where is it? You know, so do I need a ghostwriter or, you know, what's really happening? But I want it to be almost um, like a journal. I've kept journals on and off my entire career. And I go back and look at some of the things that I um that were so tragic to me in my you know late 20s and and you just just like who is who is that girl and I was like yeah that was you that was you scared and terrified not knowing if things were going to work out professionally at some point in your personal life and all these things um So there's like I have like 10 unfinished journals. And I even thought about writing a book about that, you know, kind of where you were at at certain stages. But no, I'm going to stick with that. And when it's right, it'll be right, because there there are some career unpleasantness, unpleasantness, Yeah. You know what I mean? And um, some groups that weren't really fun or welcoming or just like happy to see me. So at what point do I want to divulge that? Um, A lot of that stuff I've kept to myself. You know, my family and close friends know that this has not been a bed of roses. Um, So when I'm ready, when it's time, when it's finished, I'm close to it. But I keep going back and totally rewriting things that don't feel right. It's not, it's not for me to talk about some of the things that went down with my parents. It's not for me to, to say some of the things that, you know, some of the tra- tragedies and events that took place with my sisters. So, um, yeah, it's, it's not easy. It's not an easy process. Writing is hard. You're, you're so good at it. It's hard. <laughs>
0: It's a, well, when 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 you get to that place where you're comfortable both writing and then finishing, obviously, you know, you'll be doing publicity and I'll have you back on. But yeah, I mean, like, uh, there's a lot of people who would say that you, you'll sort of know when you're ready to ultimately sort of finish that project. And quite frankly, I mean, I think you know this and we can end with this. Like, there's a real sort of reality here that like you you may not want to publish this book as you're still working for a massive place and have a great job and might be something you want to do when that chapter of your life is is done. So you have a lot of things to sort of think about in terms of when you'd even want to when you want to open up the vein as they say. You know, have to choose when you decide when that's when that's right for you. But that is a book I will because of my respect for you, Pam, I will literally pay money for that book. I won't even ask for a freebie from your public. Oh,
1: come on. I'll send you a copy. All
0: right, Pam Oliver. I mean, where to begin with her bio? She's, uh, as we talked about on this, she's been with Fox since 1995. And as she mentioned on this podcast before, she's at ESPN, Stinson News in Georgia and other places. I remember talking to her about her first job uh, for the athletic, which is pretty cool. And again, she's-
1: Can I just tell you you how much, you know, I admire you. I look forward- No, you can't, Pam. I'm cutting you off. I'm going to. One of my favorite things um, that you do at the end of your column is make suggested readings. Um, I I I am so I get so inspired. You know, I have I have a couple of books. One is right here that I've not yet read, but it was one of your recommendations, um, and uh, a a book on um, you know kind of the World War II reporters and. Uh, I've always been attracted to that, have a typewriter that was from that that time. Uh, And I was just like this. It's a it's a tutorial. I think all these young women and men and kids should take from your article and look at that suggested reading because those are some great pieces and books. That you're it's around. very
0: nice. It's very nice of you, Pam. And again, you know the, the respect is mutual. And again, I, I'm not bullshitting anybody who's listening to this interview. There have just been so many people who've come on this podcast who have mentioned Pam Oliver, particularly women who cover college football or the NFL. So again, I, I'm you know I'm glad that you're continuing on. You should honestly work for as long as you want. You're still like excelling at the highest. Uh, level. And you're just, I'm again, uh, you know, I'm fanboying a little bit, but I just have great respect. I like people with integrity and you are on very high in the terms of the people who I've covered in this business. So I, I always appreciate your time. And, uh, and I, as you know, I have great admiration for what you
1: do. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. It's, it's a fun, it's a fun ride. Pam
0: Oliver, uh, check out her obviously on, um, on Fox sports. And we thank her for coming on the sports media podcast. All right, so very pleased to be joined by my colleague at The Athletic. She also writes for Just Women's Sports as well, from one of my favorite cities in the world, Buffalo. Lindsay D'Arcangelo and Brittany De La Creta. All right, they are the co-authors of Hail Mary, the Rise and Fall of the National Women's Football League. And pleased to be joined by Lindsay. Lindsay, are you talking to me today from Buffalo or, or elsewhere?
2: Oh no, I'm, I'm the home base. I'm at, I'm in Buffalo right now. And the city is sad because of the Jacksonville loss and that horrendous game, but we don't need to talk about that.
0: <laughs> yeah. If it's anything like Toronto, at least you're getting nice weather.
2: It's, oh yeah. Uh, 60 it's degrees or it's something in the sixties, low sixties today, but it's, it's beautiful out. All
0: right. So first of all, congratulations on the book. Um, as I said, off air, it's, it's a, uh, it's an amazing achievement. And so here's where I want to start. Um, one of my, um, One of my favorite sort of story topics at when I was at Sports Illustrated were when our writers would unearth something from uh, the past, whether it was an athlete or a league that very few of us knew about as sports fans, you know, things from a different era. I'm a big women's basketball fan. So the, the whole notion of like the women who played in the fifties and the sixties, almost like barnstorming, is like really fascinating to me. They they're really never written about, um, but particularly in like the Tennessee area and stuff like that, there's a lot of legends and like um their lives almost would uh make for screenplays. But we really don't know much about them. And so when I was reading your book, that that was sort of a immediate my immediate thought was like, you guys found like this really interesting um thing that happened uh, multiple decades ago that not many people know about, even like hardcore diehard sports fans. So uh, before I sort of get into the little bit of your process, if you could just educate my audience on what the National Women's Football League was.
2: Yeah, I'd say that like 99% of people that we've talked to about this book did not know this league existed. And we're talking about, you know, casual sports band fans all the way up to diehard football fans and it just it's the word has has not been out about it um and it, it was relatively unknown and i'll just give you the quick backstory of how we stumbled across it uh britney was britney and i have been familiar with each other we're both sports writers for for probably since 2015 we were in a uh, facebook uh sports writing group for for women and um lgbtq individuals and so, you know, we'd often talk about what we were working on. And Brittany was working on a, a women in football article was looking for reference books to kind of just get some some information about and couldn't find any and reached out to me because at the time I was still writing about the bills. And um, and, and Brittany knew I had, you know, football background and um, knew the sport well. And I said, there are no there. there <laughs> they don't exist because they there aren't if you go for a search on Amazon, you're not going to find it or, or any other than these patronizing books about to learn the sport and to impress your boyfriend and, and things, things of that nature. Um, but there's really, there was really no book that existed. And I said, you know, you should write one. And, and Brittany's reply was, uh, well, if I write it, you're going to write it with me. It was a joke. Um, but we, the more we talked about it and the fact that we found a topic and a book that doesn't exist, the more we thought we had something. And so our first attempt actually was not this league. It was more of a broad view of women in football from history all the way up through to now where you see women coaching in the NFL, women refereeing, you know, analysts, commentators, all of it. We wanted to cover it all. And um, we wrote up a proposal. We got our agent and, we were told after our agent had pitched it around a little that the feedback was that it was too broad and we had to narrow it down. And so not long after that, Brittany was working on another article about this team called the Toledo Troopers, which is the winningest team in football, men's or women's. And they played in the National Women's Football League. And it just, just clicked. And, and Brittany messaged me right away and said, I think this is it. And so I looked into it as well. I looked into the league and I said, I had that, you know, you get that vibe where you stumbled, like you said. Um, you stumble onto something that's this unknown history and this, like, I, I want to say once in a lifetime opportunity to tell an untold story, you know, they don't come around often. And so we jumped on it. We, we rewrote the proposal and, um, our agent loved it. And we ended up having five different publishers bid on it. And, and that's how it, that's how it took off.
0: Nice. Yeah. If you can get, uh, multiple houses to bid on it, that's, uh, that's sort of the author, uh, the author' dream. When you know, when you uh, know, looking at your acknowledgement page, um, you thank the uh, you thank and you reference the women who played around the country. You mentioned the Toledo Troopers, the, the, some of the Oklahoma City Dolls, Los Angeles Dandelions. These are um, the names of the teams. And you know the the experiences that the women shared in the book are obviously going to be different. They were different ages. Uh, there's sort of different parts of their life um, when they played, but One of the through lines, at least for me, and this always seems to be the case, you know, on the whole, like, they, they, while, while they might have been covered as, um, clearly were covered, not might, were covered as sex objects many times, sometimes people covered them as gimmicks, by and large, the, the, the the women were serious about this, they were athletes, they, they wanted the opportunity to play the sport, which for so long had certainly been like sort of verboten for women to play, And so when you talk to the women, you know, many of them obviously now, um, you know, in their older age, um, how did you find like their experiences? Because it's, you know, it struck me that they like, they they look at themselves as athletes, whether or not like the newspapers or the media, or even the founders or their owners looked in themselves as a, you know, a gimmick to try to make some money basically.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, they're all in their mid sixties to uh, early seventies, some in their late seventies now. So, you know. The timing is 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 right for for the story to finally get told, um, so they could see it happen and, and and share in it with us. But yeah, they took it very seriously. They did not look for outside sources to legitimize them. Uh, they weren't counting on the media. They they played because they not only loved the game, but you, this also happened like around 1972, Title IX, where they hadn't been able to play organized sports women were not really allowed to there was no institutions that offered it and so to finally have this uh door open up where they could not only try other sports that they'd been told they couldn't play before but to play football something that they would only be able to do with their brothers and friends you know in back backyards and and playground lots was you know mind-blowing for a lot of them and and they they took that opportunity very seriously and And they applied themselves, they worked full time jobs and practiced three times, four times a week, they played games on weekends. And yes, there was a um, stipend to for some of the some of the owners paid their players, some didn't. And it was measly, it was like $25 before taxes. Um, So it's not like they were making buco bucks doing this, you know, but they they didn't care, you know, they wanted to play and they wanted to learn the sport and get an opportunity to, to enjoy it. Um, uh, is really the bottom line. And when they took the field, they, they played their hearts out. And, and the goal was always to, to win and, and to play together as a team and, and to, you know, do the best they could every time the ball was snapped. So, um, yeah, they, uh, it's rewarding to hear them talk about it because a lot of them refer to it as the best days of their lives, you know, and that they got to experience this, even if it was only for, uh, you know, a couple of years, some of them played, some played longer, but um, it's, it's something that they will always cherish.
0: You know, I'm not, I wasn't surprised by this, but whenever you sort of see it in print or whenever you sort of see it written about certainly in like a 2021 construct, it's always like, man, Um, And that's um, that's the media coverage of this league for its time. Um, There would be writers, as you found, who sort of frame this under they're pushing feminism or these are uh, you mentioned title nod. So this is these are you know, these are women's libbers who are following the Billie Jean King types of the world. So that was sort of like one type of writing, which, again, is pejorative. Then there was a whole other type where it was really sexualized, and they were sort of focusing on who the like conventionally attractive woman would be in the league. I feel like I remember. I think you you either wrote or it was in your book that there was one woman who that she posed for Life magazine. Like there was sort of a like there was a shoot that was done that was totally sort of. Uh, it wasn't about her athleticism. It was about sort of how appealing she was, like physically. And oh, by the way, she also happens to play. Um, Football from your from your examination and research on this, how would you characterize the media coverage of the league? and was there anybody who actually took it under sort of an athletic viewpoint, or was it always sort of written or framed under either you know look at these activists doing this or you know, let's sort of sexualize the women and and write about that as opposed to writing about their athleticism. Yeah. So
2: the player you're talking about is Gail Deary. And in 1970, 1972, she played for um, the New York Phillies. This was before the league started. There were independent teams that that were sprouting up at different um, parts of the country before there was an actual league. And um, she was put front and center. She was a model. Um, She was tall, but she was also very athletic and was a great Receiver, and it frustrated her to no end that that's what the media focused on, and that they put her front and center. She didn't ask for that that attention, but she was also very savvy and and used that to kind of promote the team. and And she, you know, she would give it right back to to reporters who 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 tried to just only talk about her looks and and whatnot. But as far as the media coverage for the league when it first started, there were there was adequate coverage i um, most of it was like you said was very coming from a sexist lens and a very like like oh check this out women playing football novelty gimmick lens you know but there were gamers written um the first first to a few years of the league there were um re- game recaps you know some some features but um those dwindled as the league went on because the curiosity wore off and i think back then most newsrooms were full of male sports writers and male editors who at first thought, Oh, get a load of this. But afterwards, like, it's just not worth covering. We're not going to put the time or effort into covering these teams. And so we definitely saw the media coverage dwindle as the league went on. But um, to, other, to answer your other part of the question is we do, I do mention, cause I wrote the, the this part of the book, it's this chapter is called media miscues um, where I do mention about three or four features that were really well done. Uh, two by women, another by uh, um, a man from uh, um, the Houston Post, I believe, who actually went on the bus with the Houston hur- Hurricanes and, and to a road road game, and just really wrote a real like the kind of articles you would see male players get all the time in, in on male teams and and male athletes. They're, like a great feature, a great inside look as who they were as players and the, and the team and the game itself, it really focused on those nuts and bolts th- that make such a great feature. And, um, but those were far and few between, you know, um, it was mostly what, you know, what, what are you trying to accomplish? You know, how do you, how do you protect your breast? was a popular question that lots of players got. It was assumed that all of the women who played were lesbians and now while well, there were women who um, were gay who did play, and that's part of um, the story as well. But it was assumed that everyone who put on a football uniform was gay. And there were just so many different stereotypes that um, I think the women developed this lack of trust in, in the media as a whole that there was being done anytime they were approached by a reporter that was being done with integrity and um, uh, that it was on the up and up. So, um, it's funny because some of the players, most players were really willing to talk to us and wanted to talk about their experience and whatnot, but some were a little hesitant. And I think it, it's because of the way they were treated by the media back then.
0: Sense, um, not to mention, they really weren't given a chance to tell their stories probably back then. And now you have somebody coming, you know, 30 years later, 40 years later actually gives you a chance to sort of maybe tell your story, which really should have been told, in the 70s. One of the things that I was blown away to discover this, oh, this was like just to me a, a very cool part of learning about this league, was you know, there were a couple of very famous people, famous uh, athletes who coached in this league. Uh, Marion Motley, like that stunned me to learn that he was, he, I think, part of the Cleveland franchise or am I uh, mistaken on that? I'll, it's, I, where's my name? I
2: believe Marion Motley was hired to coach the Cleveland Daredevils, which was not part of the nwfl that was um there's a guy by the name of sid freeman from cleveland ohio who started um originally started a women's football troupe to play against men as as a gimmick just to make money and he saw that like you had mentioned earlier these women actually take take it seriously and they could play so he decided to start other women's teams and um he had his own little group of teams uh, before the nwfl um started so that was that's part of the the history that we discussed. But yes, Mary Motley coached his Cleveland Bear Devils.
0: So like, it, you know, it sort of gets into the it gets into the notion of like there were. And I wondered if 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 you and your co-author th- sort of thought about this, like the reality is, had it been approached maybe with more money and a little bit more seriousness, like it could have it could have gotten. A lot of, how do I sort of phrase like it? Like, it, it could have been successful, would be, would sort of been my thing had it been a little more professionalized and had more money been invested and had, you know, I, again, it's a different time, but, you know, sort of tried to figure out a way to sort of let people see it more through, you know, that time would have been television. But, like, that's sort of what my thought when I, when I sort of the history of it and, and like Marion Motley was involved, like, there were, you know what I'm saying? Like it 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 like gave you like some possibilities of what could have been um had the investment been higher. At the same time, I get it. It's like the 60s and the 70s, and you know, we're not even at Title IX yet until like the 70s happen, and money isn't really gonna hit women's sports massively, obviously, until, you know, the 80s and the 90s and the WTA and obviously the WNBA after that. But I don't know. Did you did you think about like what sort of could have been had maybe the I don't know, the the right money people, let's say, entered into it earlier to really try to make a professionalized go of it.
2: Oh yeah, we talk about that. We talk about all the ways that all the things this league could have done differently and and all the ways that they were the league itself was hindered just by outside sources as well. Lack of investment being one. You know, we still talk about the lack of investment in women's sports um to this day. So you think about it, it was <laughs> back then, you know, who's gonna throw their money. Uh, at this league, let alone start a franchise, but you did have owners who did like um, the owner of the LA dandelions fully believed that he saw a future. He saw like a WNBA, like becoming popular. Like he, he had the foresight, but um, just not the ability to kind of put all the steps together um, or the, or the, the capital for long-term investment. I think a lot of these, um, owners started these teams with the thought that they were going to make money right away. And you know, you know, as well as I do, that that's not how it happens in sports. You know, it takes time to build a fan base. It takes time for a franchise to become um, viable and successful. Um, we saw that with the N- NFL and NBA, like those leagues, it took a long time to get to the powerhouses that they are today, but women's sports back then. And even today, it's it's not given that same amount of courtesy Um, and you didn't, you weren't, you weren't going to have anyone throw the, the dollars behind this league back when it needed the most. And you mentioned, you know, the games were not on television.
0: I bet you they weren't even on radio. It's just my guess.
2: Definitely not on radio. And then you, like I mentioned, the lack of real solid media coverage and promotion. I don't think the owners really knew how to, to promote this league and, and in a way that connected with, um, with fans um to make them want to come out more basically they were just they were just banking on ticket sales and on that curiosity thing you know but that that runs out you know once you see women play football and the curiosity goes away you know what's next and they never really had a solid plan for that but we talk we break all of this down i mean there's so many different aspects as to why this league failed
0: the, um, I'm not sure if it was you who wrote this or Brittany wrote this, but there, there's a line in the book that i sort of noted here. It said every step taken, whether at the youth amateur or professional level, no matter how small was one more step forward in the advancement of women's sports. And I wanted to know when you spoke to the women who were part of this league, do they, do they feel like pioneers, even if their achievements in their time were not necessarily recognized as pioneers?
2: I think back then while they were playing, the the consensus was no, you know, they weren't really trying to carve a path or, you know, even do something out of the box. They just wanted to play football. That was the, the overall consensus. But looking back now and to seeing what has sprouted up around them, yes, um, they they can make that connection and, and they can say, you know, we did something that was special, even if all of us didn't recognize it at the time. But it was you know, it was unheard of and it was groundbreaking and it, it, it kind of in a way paved the way for um, the different other, like the, the national women's soccer league, the WNBA, you know, it's it sort of being the first at, at, at any type, anything like that is, you know, takes a lot of courage. And, you know, I one of the players that I talked to played for the LA dandelions, Rose Lowe says, you know, I feel so bad that we failed, but I also believe that, because we did what we did, you know, women who are professional athletes today, you know, exist, you know, somewhat because of what we did. So they definitely see the connection.
0: I want to ask you one more about the book and then just uh, end on a couple of sort of uh, questions about women's athletics now, but it also would relate to sort of what you guys just wrote about, Um, you know, on on a, you know, on a purely honestly commercial level, In reading some of the chapters in your book, like the reality is like the, some of the stories of these women, like it reads like a movie. Like you could see a, first of all, you could certainly see a screenplay of the league. Like that's unquestionably, you know, there's so much, (laughs) I, I don't mean to be flipping here. Like so many parallels to league of, you know, a league of their own. Like it's sort of like it, you could, you could see how a narrative could exist on film for the league that you, you guys wrote about But within that structure, there's individual women, I think, who have just, like, fascinating stories who themselves could be treated given the film treatment. So maybe it's early in this, but have you guys heard from anyone who wants to turn this into a documentary, wants to turn this into some kind of uh, feature presentation? Because it feels like, like, that to me is, like, the great thing about doing, like, these, these untold history books is that, like, once you bring them to a broader public, as you guys have, like I think there's a real audience for it in other mediums, and I'm wondering if you've explored if you guys have explored that at all,
2: oh yeah, um, we've had inquiries about all of that um movie possible movie adaptation po- podcast series documentary um and and we're feel we're fielding all of those inquiries with um the hope that they happen because like you you said, there's just so many different ways that this this could be um told in, in different mediums and, and all the players, there's so many different players who who do have different stories that could be shared. And then, you know, other players that we never spoke to could come out of the woodwork as well. Now that this is out there. So um, yeah, all of it, we're, we're open to all of it.
0: Not to mention each city has sort of its own unique culture and sort of had its own uh, like the team sort of was marketed in a certain way based on that city that in itself, all those stories are, Kind of interesting. All right, a couple things here because obviously you, you've written a lot about this, whether it's at the athletic or uh, just women's sports. One of the things uh, we saw, um, and again, this is men's college football, but it's it, it it it's germane to our conversation here. When Sarah Fuller at Vanderbilt um, played and um, uh, scored points in a college game, as well as obviously sort of kicked off, there were certainly millions of people who were like this is very cool what an awesome achievement and then there were predictably this is a gimmick uh college football's a joke Vanderbilt's only doing this to uh get attention she shouldn't be anywhere near the field um it, once again like emblematic of just so much nonsense that existed still in 2021 about this you would think that that should be celebrated because it's an amazing achievement like uh it's groundbreaking gender breaking but yet you know, it also was part of a, a culture war, uh, you know, at least in our little world of sports here. What did you make of that? I'm sure you were not surprised by the reaction of some, but I just wonder overall what you made of that. Because, you know, once again, um, it's just spoke to, to me like where I'm not naive. I'm not saying once upon a time, everybody would have celebrated, but it was a reason for celebration that then turned into a sort of a, some larger issue on a, you know, culture war, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera.
2: Yeah, it's kind of silly that people can't just take it for what it is, you know. Instead of trying to make something out of it and turn it into like even switch it over to like a p- 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 turn it into politics, like so many things are done these days. Like it was just cool. Like couldn't it be appreciated? It's like when uh, um, someone dunks in the WNBA. Like nobody's saying, "Oh, no, women, women can dunk like men now." Like nobody's making that argument. But it's it's just cool. Can we just appreciate it for what it is? Um, that's just, it makes no sense to me at all, but I think the Sarah Fuller thing, what other option does she have? Does she have an ability to play on a women's college football team? Because she doesn't, because they don't exist. So what other option did she have? She wanted to play football and she was good enough to make this team. Is she supposed to just not play? You know, nobody, nobody thinks about that aspect. There's no, there's no pipeline for women in football. There wasn't back then. There's not one now. Um, after youth football, what options do they have? You can join high school. Maybe you could play a contact position depending on where you are and what the competition's like. Maybe it's most likely going to be a kicker position. And then even after high school, it, the the percentage lessens even more. You're definitely not playing a contact position in, in college. Um, if you can make it on as a kicker, more kudos to you. Like The NFL started – Flag football, this initiative to, for flag football on, at the high school and the college level, which is great because now women will have a chance to really familiarize themselves with the game and and be able to grow with the game as they as they get older. There's an option now, but for 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 the most for the most part, there wasn't. So, you know, I I think people need to really before you just jump on it, think about that. You know, it was a cool thing. I'm sure it was a once in a lifetime thing for her. Can't we just be happy for what it is i mean no one's saying that she was going to go and get drafted to an nfl team after that i mean let's reel it in you know but I mean, nobody i don't know it's always got to be made into something it would it would be nice if people could just take a moment and just and just think about it from that aspect you know what other choice what other option did she have
0: yeah well said no one's saying she's justin tucker at the same time, she kicked in college a college football division one game, which is awesome, and, and, which, which ninety nine point, which was
2: a record for you know she did something that nobody, no other woman had done before,
0: right? Which ninety nine point nine percent of the human population cannot do, and so like you know it's a it's an amazing accomplishment. I'm with you on that. Just again, there's so much wasted energy on nonsense. Um, in terms of the professionalization of women's football, do you see? any possibility in your lifetime you're younger than me so i'll call you i'll give it i'll give it your lifetime as opposed to my lifetime um that uh, i am not we're not i'm not saying we're gonna i'm not naive we're not getting a, an nfl equivalent that said do you think that a possibility exists let's put the time frame between 10 and 30 years where there can be some kind of let's call it even semi-pro or you know uh like the minor league sort of level where there would be an option for women who want to play football, can compete in a league which could be sustainable in some ways. And maybe the sustainability is, you know, um, salaries or whatever they are. They have a, uh, a media rights deal where maybe it, it, you can watch it on digital or you can stream it. So, you know, again, no one is saying this is major, major sports, but I can tell you that there's a lot of niche sports out there that survive um with not a ton of traditional funding and my i my question for you is having you just you guys you just wrote about this book if the pipeline presents itself where it becomes viable do you think this can happen or i don't know or does society still have a very weirdness when it comes to women playing tackle football which i my sense is that's where the issue would be because there'd still be too many people who i think think oh well you know, this is this is a quote-unquote men's sport, not a women's sport.
2: Yeah, there's a lot of things I want to touch on just from that one question, but I mean, there are so many different avenues now that obviously weren't available back in the 70s with with streaming. You see the WNBA getting creative. Um, yes, they're getting putting more games on national television, which seems like it would be a no-brainer, um, but they're also showing games on Twitter, you know, and you got a National Women's Soccer League, I, I think, had some games on Facebook Live. I could be wrong about that, but these leagues are using other means of technology. So, um, which is a great, great, um, way to, to like leverage, you know, leverage technology in a way to gain more fans and put your product out there. Um, and when it comes to women's football, you touch the nail on the head pretty much uh, to use that cliche. Um, for some reason, we don't see the acceptance of women's soccer and women's basketball, um, the same way with women's football. And I think because it's such a masculine sport, um, society at large still has a hard time wrapping around, wrapping their heads around the fact that women can be that physical. And I'm not saying at the same level as men but can play the sport, you know, full on tackle in a way, um, that they just, some, I don't think can get past that. You know, it just, there's a reason why it hasn't caught on. Right. Um, there are semi-pro leagues today. There's at least four or five that we mentioned in the book. Um, I would love to see one league. And we talked to uh, one of the owners of uh, the owner of the Boston Renegades of the Women's Football Alliance. They're the they're the championship team um, and one of one of the most dominant teams in women's football history um, since the Toledo Troopers. They she they said basically that um, they, you know, these leagues would be open to kind of forming one central league because right now they're all trying to pull from the same pool of resources, investment, fans, marketing, promotion, you know, you're all grabbing for the same thing. If you had one league, you could, uh, you know, you could pull it all together, um, get some real, you know, investment and backers to, and really push that, you know, go for the big push, kind of like the WNBA um did back in 97 so i'm hopeful i i really don't know i i don't know if we'll ever see a women's football league that you know i keep saying the wmb because that's like the measuring stick right i don't know if you'll ever see a women's football league like to that level but you know society changes you know perceptions change there's room for growth women's sports as a whole is on the uptick um you're seeing a lot more investment. Um, you're seeing other, other types of, of, of leagues like, um, I, I, I AU Unlimited, is it? Um, Athletes Unlimited, thank you, is, is, is a, this new venture that just started, I, I think last year with softball and they did volleyball and now they're doing women's basketball. Um, so you're seeing, you're seeing it happen like around you. So I, I could see that happening for women's football. It's just, you don't know, you know, this it's these leagues, these semi pro leagues are dealing with the same issues that they dealt with in the 1970s, which is kind of mind boggling. But there's there seems to be similar hurdles that they just can't get over for whatever reason.
0: And this leads me to my last question, by the way, you mentioned uh, softball, college softball, probably one of the. Uh, oh, yeah. Undervalued. Uh, um Properties that exist in sports—the rating, the e, the numbers that ESPN gets on viewership are crazy. And if they could ever actually sell that property individually, in the same way if the women's basketball could, you're talking multiple, multiple millions. Because just look at the women's uh, college world series drawing two million viewers. I mean, it's like that destroys like regular season baseball, regular season NBA. Um, it's a really good property. um So let's get me into the last thing. And again, you're someone. You yeah, know, I mean, you're a very prominent writer when it comes to writing about women's sports. Um, you know, you're 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 known in that space. I hope that's not sounding pejorative. Um, you know, it's just that that is the space that uh, you you are known for. It's an interest. It's obviously an interest of mine as well. Um, and you've seen um, in many ways the growth of women's sports in this country has been humongous. For example, U.S. Open this year. Uh, women's winner get two point five million dollars for winning the U.S. Open tennis. You know that that's compare that to Billie Jean King's time. That it's incredible. It's it might as well be. It's like Star Wars, basically. It's a it's like a future, basically, planet. Um, women's college basketball final between Stanford and Arizona drew of four million viewers. a that's a massive, crazy number in my world in television. All that said, same year, right, Lindsay, twenty twenty one, the women who competed in the women's college basketball championship have to deal with substandard um, training facilities compared to their men, compared to the men. And we would have never known this if not for an Oregon basketball player who decided to put, I don't know if it was TikTok or Twitter, whatever she put it on. She basically exposed the fraud that this was. So where do I mean... I know it's a sort of a broad question, but are you optimistic about where things are going? Because there are certainly things that you can see out there that are optimistic. WNBA viewership numbers are up. I mentioned, you know, prize money in certain sports are up at the same time. Like the women's college basketball players had to deal with something that's just absurd for a billion dollar business of which college athletics is. So I can make, you know, I can spin it like, you know, we're in a ascending time. This is awesome. At the same time, like there are things that 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 were happening that like feel like it's like nineteen sixty five so I don't know how do you you have a i feel like you have a much better voice on this than me how do you how do you weigh this where things are at the moment sort of on a writ large level
2: I am optimistic you know i as you mentioned, I've been in this covering you know women's sports for a while now and and i'd like i like to consider myself an advocate and then and back in the the in February of this year, I f- switched my focus to just, just women's basketball in the WNBA, um, and so I've I've seen a lot of growth. I mean, the numbers are there. You've you've we've already touched on on them. The numbers, the trend is there. You can see it. There's been more media coverage. The media coverage leading up to this WNBA season was the most I've ever seen across mo- like main. I'm talking mainstream media. And I've seen that growth since 2015 it's gone up and up and up and up each year. And, um, it's just, it's, it's, it's the increase. you, You can see the increase. Um, I think where it needs where the ultimately the change needs to take place is the people in charge. You still have, and the NCAA is a great example of this. You have a lot of men who still look at women's sports as almost like a charity case. And, um, that's the the actions they take dictate that you know it it you can tell that that's their view just by the steps that they take. I mean, not not being able to have the women's college basketball share in the March Madness marketing, just that name is ludicrous to me. Make it explain it because I I don't I don't get it all. And you're you're sitting there saying, well, women's sports don't make as much money. Well, you're not putting enough money behind them to actually promote them to have them make money. And if you're seeing these growth in numbers and viewership and, and people wanting to watch people, how can they watch if you don't put the games on TV? If you don't put the, the information out there, that was always my rub with the WNBA. They've added more national games on television in the past three years. It's gone up and up and up. And what's, what was the holdout? You know, how do you, how are you supposed to track the casual fan? If you never show showcase the product. So you have a bunch of people in charge who are still applying these old I- ideas to, to their approach to marketing, promotion, to the growth of women's sports. And it's time to rethink it. Um, and I th- as you have more people coming up and getting in these positions of power where they can change things, uh, that's, where, that's, where the, that's really the, where the effective change is going to take place. But that needs to happen first.
0: The book is Hail Mary. The Rise and Fall of the National Women's Football League. Uh, Co authors are Lindsay D'Arcangelo and Brittany De La Creta. Um, you can get that book on Amazon. Uh, you get that book pretty much, I would think, on any uh, form of uh, online, you know, wherever you're getting basically your books via online. Lindsay, am I correct about this? You could generally speaking. Uh, get that you got, I think you guys do you have a uh, you have a direct website too as well for the book that you guys set up
2: Um the through our publisher of uh, bold type books um but you can you can get it anywhere we support independent bookstores bookshop.org is a great um, spot to order Amazon's fine um you'll find links on both my website and Brittany's so
0: And I'm I'm t- again I I'm not just saying this like uh my sense is that someone is going to purchase the rights to this to do something in another medium. It just, like, again, having worked at Sports Illustrated for as long as I did, like, the the book that you guys wrote re- read to me like so many of my former colleagues who ended up selling similar ideas because there's such a demand for these stories from previous eras that we don't know much about. So kudos to you two for, one, telling a great story, but two, also unearthing something, which is not very easy to do in 2021 regarding um regarding sports that we um that we really just as a sports culture don't know much about uh i wish you the best of luck in the book Lindsay. um continued success i mean it's it's great to read your work uh, at a place where i work and uh you know plus you're in buffalo so i always have a soft spot for anybody from my from my former city uh thanks uh so much for joining me today on the sports media podcast
2: thank you for having me i really appreciate it um i appreciate all of your support. Um, you are a great supporter of women's sports. And um we just feel like we found we've stumbled onto something special that we wanted to to get the word out about. So I I thank you for that, helping us do that.
0: All right, back in the studio, I want to thank both my guests, uh Pam and Lindsay. I really enjoyed both conversations. Um you can tell, you know, particularly with Pam, uh, just how much respect I have for her. I, you know, I've I feel like ever since I started writing about this stuff Pam Oliver's been around and again um, the piece I was referring to like I wrote a piece that 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 Fox was not happy about because I got the goods on Fox wanting to not just remove her from the number one team which they did but but to let her go which of course would have been insane um, on any kind of level and eventually she worked it out with Fox which was uh, which was good but yeah, Pam Pam Oliver's uh, serious integrity and uh, you know obviously a Sort of a massive pioneer in the business, so check her out on Fox. Obviously, check out Lindsay's uh, book, Hail Mary: The Rise and Fall of the National Women's Football League. If you like these kind of conversations, please head to uh, wherever you get your podcast. Leave us a five-star review and a note. Uh, it's very helpful. You know, the positive balances out the uh, balances out the negative, so that's always appreciated. Previous guests, last couple, Chris Jericho, of uh, AEW and Talk is Jericho. He uh, he talked about reinvention, and you know he's been one of the more remarkable sports entertainment uh, figures over the last couple of years. And uh, he gave a real interesting just uh, examination of how he approaches media, how he uh, how he approaches promos, and how um, sort he's considered he's sort of reinvented himself a number of times to sort of stay relevant in a in a media ecosystem, so I appreciate his time. For that, Robert Griffin III of ESPN, who I think is a fabulous college football analyst and has a great, great future. He was great. And Katie Strang and Mark Lazarus, two of my great colleagues at The Athletic, and uh, and Katie in particular talking about working on some really, really hard stories, particularly when it comes to sexual assault and sports. And then the one before that, ESPN reporter and Utah jazz analyst, Holly Rowe, on her uh, adding another great job when it comes to being an analyst for uh, the Utah Jazz, which is what she is doing now. And then before Holly, we had uh, Jeff Van Gundy. Uh, it's always interesting. And sort of talked about where he is in his career. So there's always a ton of stuff in the archives, I think, that uh, you'll enjoy. And please, uh, please check it out. I want to thank Patrick Antonetti for producing this podcast. Thanks to everybody at Cadence 13. And of course, thanks to you for listening. Appreciate it as always. And we'll see you soon on the Sports Media Podcast.